Okay, assignments due today. We have a lab that we were working on last week. I know a couple people asked if they had questions on it. If you have questions after class, I'll be happy to go, go over anything else on it if you need to talk about it. But I would like that at the end and I'll try to get it back to you either Wednesday or fr by Friday for sure. Extra credit assignment is also due today if you're going to be doing that. That was subscribing to the podcast and then sending me an email from your Hawkmail account. And that's due sometime by the end of the day today. I think about a little over half the class has done it. So there's still about nine or ten people who have not done it as of this morning. So if you still want that, that's still an opportunity for ten points extra credit that you can do. Homework one is due on Friday. A couple people have turned it in. You can turn it in earlier. In terms of turning it in, when I say it's due on Friday, it's really due at 6 a.m. Saturday is what I use as my cutoff. So that gives you Friday night to work on it. If you're a late night, if you're one of those late night people who's working until 11 or 12 and comes home and wants to do the homework then, you still have that option. Um, if you're turning it in paper in class, you're going to have to give it to me in class on Friday, obviously. We're not going to see you on Saturday at that, at that hour. But you have the option. If you're going to submit it on D2L, which is your other option to submit it, is you go ahead and put it up there. There's a drop box for homework assignments. Save it. Label it as homework one. So I know which one it is, especially if it's titled homework one, then I know when I'm looking at them later in the semester and I see ten different things in there for you, I know which one I'm, I'm looking and which ones have already been graded. But my cutoff for timing is always 6 a.m. the next day. So when I tell you the quiz is available through the 5th of September, really, if you're working that night and you want to come back and take it at 2 in the morning, it'll be up there till 6 a.m. the following day on the 6th. But after that, it will cut off completely. So just as a note for any of, the, any of the assignments I do, I'm putting the due date there, but really it's 6 a.m. The following, the following day that you can still turn them in through. So homework one due Friday slash Saturday morning. Quiz one will be available starting on Friday, and you can take that any time between Friday before class if you really want to jump and get it done, and you can take it up through the following Wednesday. I'd recommend making sure we get through most of that. We're going to finish chapter zero today and start on chapter one. We probably should be through chapter one by Friday if all goes well. You know, barring a flood that cancels classes for some time in September as we had a, a year ago. But that's what, that's what the schedule is for right now. Same with the exam. I have the exam scheduled for September 7th. I was thinking about it. I think I'm going to try to leave the date as the 7th. So I'm going to leave the date. I may adjust the chapters as needed. So the exam you can plan on September 7th that the first exam will be there. It may be chapter 0, 1, and half of 2. And I'll let you know exactly as we get closer where it's going to cut off. For sure by the Wednesday before that or whatever we've gotten through on Wednesday is where I will cut off the material. Hopefully we'll get through all of chapter 2, but if we don't, I still want to have this the first exam that day instead of extending it off another day so that we can get through get through everything for it. And the other thing I've put up there is your first solar observations are due the 14th of September. That's not the project. You don't have to turn in the project or anything. That's not till November. Don't worry about that. What I look for in these, and there'll be three of them. I said first solar observations. You'll see a first and then later and a month later there'll be a second and then early November there'll be a third. Is I, it's to keep you going with the project because otherwise I give you the project at the beginning of the semester and I'll mention it once in a while and then people will think in November, I've got to do this project that you haven't even started yet. So I put it up here to, just to make sure you're making the observations as you go. So all I'm looking for by the 14th of September 
Now technically one observation, although I'd hope you'd have two or three by then, but at least one observation. All you need to turn in to me is that data sheet on the back. Easiest way to do it if you're recording it on that is just make a copy of that. Turn that in, put your name on it, turn that in for me. If you're recording them on the computer using Excel or another spreadsheet, you can just print out a copy. That's fine. All I need is the date, the time of your observations, what the sky conditions were, the height of your objects you were using, and the length of your shadow. I don't need any calculations, I don't need anything else done. But what I do is I'll take your observations and I'll go and put them in the computer that I use and I'll tell you if you're, how you're doing. So you turn them in on Friday, I'll look at them over the weekend and give them back to you on Monday and say, you know, you're doing fine, keep going, or you're in your, your you know, or that you're way off, something is really wrong and maybe we want to look at how you're measuring or what kind of objects you're using, maybe you're doing something wrong. And the whole idea is that I'd rather catch it in September than when I trade them in November. You know, if I tell you then you're way off, it's too late to fix anything. If I tell you you're off in September, maybe your first two are still going to be way off and maybe we can fix something for the rest of the time. So I'm going to try doing that. This is a graded assignment. I actually give you five points for this. Your, the project itself is worth 120. Each of these will be worth five points. So get one observation and turn it in by the 14th. It's a very easy way to get five points. I don't grade it on how well you did. Your observation might have been completely wacky there. You might have ca your calculations may tell me the sun is straight overhead, which is wrong this time of year. But you'll still at least get credit for having done, tried to make an observation by that time. So it's just sort of to push you to get started and get you in the habit of looking at, at, looking at those observations. So if you don't want to do it, you lose the five points. It comes off your final grade on the, pro on the project. It's not going to crush you, but if you can't get anything by then, but it's helpful if you can at least get one observation by then because I can tell you how you're doing. My next time will be in early October to be able to check them. Although if you ever want them looked at other times, you know, feel free to send me observations or anything and I'll be happy to take a look at them. So that's what's coming up. Questions? Questions? 14, 15, 16. Well, we only lost a few people. Only scared a few people away with the first lab, I guess. That or they're still working on it. All right, picture of the day for today. Curiosity on Mars. So this is actually the Curiosity rover, which landed a couple weeks ago. And you can see it there off to the bottom left. There's part of the body of the rover here. And there's the robotic arm that goes out that is used to explore. And really what we're looking at is off in the distance there, you see a mountain. That's Mount Sharp. That is where this is head. That's where the rover is headed. It's actually started moving. It's, been, it's moved a few meters in a couple directions. Moved, turned, moved, just to try to get the feel of everything and controlling it. And it's going to be heading over the next few months to a year. I'm not sure exactly when it's supposed to get to that mountain. But it's going to be heading towards there and exploring along the way. So it's exploring the crater here. It's the scale crater that it's in, and it's going to be heading towards this mountain to explore, looking for possible signs of life. Now, it's not going any place very quickly. The rover moves about 300 feet per hour is its speed. So you can walk a lot faster than that, right? That's less than a tenth of a mile an hour. Very, very slow. Well, for good reason, though. If anything happened, if it got stuck, if it didn't see, you know, because we can't see it in real time. It's not like we can control it as moving as you do with a remote control car here on Earth. You know, we send the signal for it to move. That signal goes to Mars. Takes between 4 and 15 minutes, depending on where Mars is. 
It signals us back. It takes another 4 to 15 minutes. So you're talking between you know, 8, 10 to maybe half an hour before we get a response back. If something's gone wrong, it's too late. So, and if it tips itself over, you know, there's no calling AAA to go straighten it up. You're, you're done. If it tips over and it, the wheels won't touch the ground and it can't move anymore, it can explore right where it is until its batteries go dead. As long as it can move, things can be adjusted. Solar panels can be adjusted to point better at the sun so that it can keep its batteries charged. So that's why it moves so slow. But yeah, if you were out there, you know, you could easily, easily outrun. Even the, even the slow of us walkers could easily, easily pass it at a tenth of a mile an hour. But the reasoning, again, very good reasoning for it. We've, had, we've landed three rovers on Mars now. This one that just landed, two others that landed a while back, one of those is still operational. The other one did get stuck. It didn't move any faster. It wasn't like they tried to zip it through at you know, 30 miles an hour or anything, you know, a bigger speed. It just happened to get stuck someplace, and there's not much you can do. You know, any little thing that gets stuck on something like this when you're this far away, you know, there's no way to send somebody up to fix it. Hubble Space Telescope we launched. We were at least able to send a shuttle up to go fix it when it had problems when it was first launched in 1990. So we were able to actually go up and fix it. If something had happened like that with one of the rovers, there's not a whole lot you can do. You can't just send a rescue mission out to, to fix it. You're stuck. So it's going to be looking for signs of life on Mars. Again, not ancient civilizations. So it's not going to be looking for remnants, you know, archaeological bones or any other features of an old civilization. Really, it's looking for microbes, you know, single-celled organisms that may have origin, originated on Mars you know, billions of years ago. Could they still be there? Could there be fossilized remnants of them somewhere in the rocks of Mars? That's one of the things the Curiosity is going to be looking for. On Mars now, there's very little atmosphere. There is some, not a whole lot, but there is an atmosphere there. Not enough that even if it had oxygen or was the same component, if it was the same percentages of all the elements as the Earth, you wouldn't be able to go out there and breathe. It's much too thin. So very thin atmosphere now. Um, and very cold temperatures. Temperatures are much colder than on the Earth. The hottest temperature you might get pushes into maybe 70 degrees or so. Doesn't sound too bad, but in that kind of pressure, it's not very, it's not a very warm, it's not going to be a very warm temperature. And no sign of water, right? We need liquid water for, for life. Maybe. We think we need liquid water for life. Every life, all life that we know needs some kind of, uses some kind of liquid water. Of course, we're biased because we only know of life on one planet. We don't know. Maybe someplace else, if we could study life on 500 different planets, we might find a little bit better about how life works. We might find that you know, water is needed 90% of the time, or 100% of the time, or maybe it's only needed 10% of the time. Maybe something else will work. Again, a possibility. So that's one of the things that Curiosity is going to be looking at. And I'm sure as it starts moving towards Mount Sharp, we'll see some more pictures of it over the course of the semester. Questions? All right, let's go finish up chapter zero. Chapter zero. We, were, we had just gone through, we just talked about eclipses. So I've got just a couple little things here to start with. First has to do with measuring distances. In fact, we're almost done with chapter, chapter zero. There's only a few more little things to talk about. Distances are something we're going to come back to this in this class over and over again. We're going to be looking at how we measure the distances to stars. So how do we figure out the distance to a star? How do we figure out the distance to galaxies, star clusters? How do we find out distances in the universe? How do we measure them? And it's something that's very difficult to get. 
You know, you can't just take a tape measure out there and measure the distance to any object. We've only traveled to some of the nearest objects in the universe. And yes, it may seem like Uranus and Neptune are very far away, but in terms of the distance to the nearest star, there, you know, here we are, and here they are, and the nearest star is, you know, way out there someplace. We haven't traveled that far. So in order of making direct measurements is not really something we can do. Now one way that we measure, and you may have seen something like this done before, is in terms of what we call triangulation, in terms of measuring an object, measuring the distance to an object, where if you know, you observe it from one position, you observe it from another position, here you're looking straight on at the object, here it's some angle, you can measure that angle, you can measure how far you went to make this observation versus this observation, and there's a nice right triangle there, you can solve the right triangle in terms of figuring out and figure out the distance to the tree. If you know this is a 90 degree angle, you'll know this, you measure this angle, you'll know that one, you know this side, I can determine any of those other sides. I can determine the distance across the stream to that tree. You don't need to worry about going through the calculations for the class. The fact that it can be done is what's important. And we do a similar thing in astronomy to measure the distances to the stars. If we look at a star from two different positions, its position is going to change. So we do the same thing with a star. It's called parallax, similar to triangulation. But if we look at a star from one position on the Earth, say over here, and another astronomer looks at it from this position on the Earth, okay, they're a certain distance apart, right? They're separated by the entire Earth. The, objects, the nearby object is going to look in one position in one set of images. So one astronomer will take the images here, image A, and sees here's this object, this planet, perhaps relative to all the stars that are much, much further away. Observer at B does the same thing. Gets the same image. Well, there's their image of the planet. Stars are all the same, as you know, right? There's these four stars. There's this triangle here. There's this loop here. All the stars are exactly the same. But what's changed is the position of the close nearby object. So we can do this for stars. If we measure this for even the closest star, other than the sun, we can't measure it on the Earth. That baseline is, so, is not big enough to show the difference. So it'll work maybe for a planet, but for anything, even the nearest stars, looking at one side of the Earth versus the other, that shift is going to be too small to be able to be measured. In fact, we have to use a bigger version of this. And what we do is, here's your, here's your star you're trying to measure, and your distant stars are way out here somewhere. And here's the sun, and you look at the Earth here. You actually take advantage of the fact that the Earth moves around the sun, and you observe the star here. It's going to look like it's in that constellation. You're going to observe the star here. It's going to look like it's against those stars in that constellation. And you can measure that angle. If you can measure that angle, we know what this is, right? This is one astronomical unit here. This is one astronomical unit here. So we know the distance. We could figure out the distance to that star. Even then, even using the entire orbit of the Earth, two astronomical units, from one observation to the next. You've got to sit there and wait six months too, right? Got to wait for the Earth to get there. You can't go zoom the Earth around in its orbit. The largest parallax whoops, is 0.75 arc seconds. 
So less than one arc second. So one arc second is, or 60, 60 arc seconds is one arc minute. 60 arc minutes is one degree. We went through that earlier, last time. So it's a very, very tiny fraction. Splitting up each of those degrees into 3,600 pieces, you're still not even taking one of them for the closest star. But it is, a, it is a, a very tiny angle, but it is one that we can measure. We can measure that for some of the nearest stars. In fact, out to a good many light years, you know, 20, 30, 50, even 100 light years, we can start to be able to measure this parallax and get a distance to a star. 100 light years sounds like a big distance. Again, that's nothing in terms of the scale of the galaxy. If you had our galaxy here, nice little spiral galaxy, that 100 light years is some little circle right there around our sun. Those are the only objects we can measure distances to directly with this method. But it beats anything else, right? We can't take a rocket ship out there and look at the odometer when we get there. Okay, we traveled, you know, 3.86 light years. We traveled 35 light years. You don't, can't do that. It's the only method to determine directly to determine distances to the stars. And what we're going to see over the coming uh, chapters, coming up when we start talking about stars a little more again and then we get into galaxies, is how we expand on this and how we use other methods to try to get further out and measure distances, not only within our galaxy, but to other galaxies as well. But parallax is that first step that we use in order to measure distances directly. And it actually gives us a good direct distance. It doesn't depend on anything else. The problem is that angle is just so tiny. That's a very, very small angle to measure. Again, the full moon was 1800 arc minutes. Or 1800 arc seconds. That's less than one. So take the full moon, imagine the full moon, cut that up into 1800 pieces. We're trying to measure less than one of those to get this, to get this angle. We're trying to measure that kind of shift in stars. It can be done. We can measure that accurately now. But it isn't something that's really easy to do, which was one of the reasons this was not first done until almost 200 years ago. It was until the early 1800s that we actually got the first measurements of parallax, which really were the first thing that proved, guess what, the Earth moves. Okay, there's a proof. Parallax would be a prediction of the theory that the Earth goes around the sun. So, that was one that would agree with this theory, but disagree with the fact that the Earth sits still and everything else goes around, around it. Alrighty, so finally, talking about scientific theories, and we did the scientific method last time. We did a little bit on that. I talked to you a little bit, I gave you a little bit on the, on the lab that we did on Friday. Scientific theories have a couple of basic things that they have to be able to do. Any scientific theory has to be able to be tested. If it doesn't make any predictions that you can actually go test, it's not a good scientific theory. It has to be something that you can go and test. So, an example might be, is the moon made, the, my theory might be the moon is made of green cheese. <coughs> it's a good scientific theory. Maybe stupid now because we know differently, but, you know, 50 years ago, we couldn't say for sure we hadn't been to the moon, you know, before we'd been to the moon. Well, it was a perfectly reasonable theory, but it was because you could test it. Go to the moon, get a piece of it, take a bite, break a tooth, and find out it's not made of green cheese or it's very stale green cheese. You know, you could at least go and test it. Something that couldn't be testable could be a statement like, okay, Einstein was the greatest scientist ever. Can you test it? There's no way to test it and say, you know, I might say so, someone else might say, you know, Stephen Hawking's better. 
Or someone might say, no, Newton did more. You know, even though Newton didn't know, you, know, you could pick. You could pick and choose. Who was the greatest? It's a matter for debate. There's no way to actually test and go through and say, this is really the greatest scientist. Or this is the you know, greatest painting in the, in the world. Greatest art, artwork in the world. You can't, there's no way to go and test that. So, doesn't mean that you're wrong if you say that Einstein is the greatest uh, scientist. But there's no way to test it and prove it. So, you gotta, it's got to be a theory that you can actually test. It's something you have to continually test. You never stop. You're always trying to continually verify you know, what's going on. What can you refine? Can you make your theory a little bit better? Can it make a new prediction? Does it make a new prediction that we haven't tested yet that we can try? And they're supposed to be simple and elegant. So you don't want uh, theories that tend to get more and more complicated. And we're going to see that over the, in the next chapter when we talk about the motions of the planets. When we started out thinking about the motions of the planets, remember the Earth was at the center of the universe. Everything went around the Earth, so we had to explain the observations of the planets in terms of moving around the Earth. And we could do it. But as our observations got better and better and we made them more and more accurate, the, the method, the theory had to get more and more complex. It could still explain exactly where the planet is or close to where the planet would be. But it got more and more complicated. And when you start to get to a theory that's that complex, you start looking for something simpler. The other statement I have down here says that you can prove a theory wrong, but you really can't prove it right. There could always be some other theory. And you know, Newton's is one of those. We use Newton's laws. And in fact, we'll come back and I'll explain them to you in the coming chapter. We'll talk about Newton's laws and Newton's laws of gravity. Well, they're wrong. We still use them, but they're wrong. The real explanation of gravity currently is Einstein's general relativity. We'll look at that too a little bit later in the class, but not in near as much detail. It's, a much, it's not necessarily a more complicated theory, but it goes into a lot more mathematics than Newton's does. Newton's is easily, more easily understandable at this level of math. Einstein's goes into, we'll talk about it from more of a theoretical and observational point of view. But it really is. So Newton's laws, Newton's theory is wrong. It doesn't work in all cases. It works in almost everything. You know, Newton's law explains how the Earth orbits the Sun and the Moon orbits the Earth. And it explains how Mars orbits and Venus orbits and Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune and Pluto and all of the asteroids and everything else. But I left out one. It doesn't explain how Mercury orbits. Newton's laws don't quite, they're, they're off this much. It's real close. But they're slightly off for Mercury. So Newton's law of gravity, if you go through all of Newton's equations, his universal law of gravity, it doesn't predict Mercury's orbit. Quite right. It's real close. It's not like it's way off, but it's really just a little bit off. It's enough that when you go through and you look at Einstein's theory of how you do gravity, Einstein's is right. Einstein's predicts it correctly. So it's not wrong. We're still going to get, we can still get to Mercury just fine, it's, but it's off that little bit that it's wrong. It also doesn't work when you get close to a black hole. And we talk about black holes later in the course. It's completely different. You know, we don't, it does not begin to explain as you get closer and closer to a black hole. And that's the difference. Newton's laws work very good when you're reasonably far away from the source of gravity. If you get a real strong gravitational source and you're close to it like a black hole or like the sun, it does, the theories diverge. Newton predicts one thing, Einstein predicts another. Observations have shown that Einstein is the one who is right. 
Will we find another thing in 10, 100, or 500 years that you know, Einstein predicts one thing and so-and-so predicts something else? And you know, who's right? It'll come up again. And maybe Einstein will be found to be wrong in this situation. You know, so the theories are constantly being refined. We know that gravity exists. How it actually works is something that we're still trying to completely understand. General relativity is the best that we have right now. Alrighty. And then just to go through, and you've probably seen some of this before, perhaps you take another science class in high school or here. But essentially you start with an observation. Okay, so observation is just a fact. That's something that everybody's going to, going to agree on and that you can see. You can observe it and exactly, you know exactly what's going to happen. The sun, is rising, the sun rises in the east. Okay, that's something there's no argument about. The sun rises there. We see it, we can go back tomorrow, it's going to do it again, and it's going to do it again, and again, and again, and again. So you've got to come up with a theory. Let's predict why does the sun rise in the east. There's what the problem is. We know the sun rises there, but why does it do that? That's when you start coming into theory. Why does the sun rise in the east? Well, one possible explanation would be that, okay, the sun is this little ball of gas that right, goes up and is orbiting or going around the earth and rises in the east and sets, you know, it's just in a big circle that orbits the earth and rises in the east every day and sets in the west. That would be a perfectly reasonable explanation that explains exactly what we see. What you need is that theory needs to make new observations. You come up with a theory. That theory should make some new predictions perhaps. You know, maybe you, the sun doesn't rise exactly in the east. Maybe it varies a little bit, which it does. Sometimes it rises a little bit north of east, sometimes a little bit south of east. And your theory has to be able to predict that. So you'd make some predictions. Okay, the sun is going to rise exactly here three days from now or three weeks from now. And then you go and you make your observation. Okay, we predicted exactly where it's going to be. Where does the sun rise in three weeks' time? Does it rise exactly where you predicted to? Great. Didn't prove your theory right, but you verified it. You got another, another you know, mark towards a good theory. You got a good, another good observation. So make another, so if you don't have to refine your theory, make another prediction. Okay, where is it going to be three months from now? Does it still match up? You predict where it's going to be three months from now, come back three months later, watch where it rises, find out, guess what, I'm off a little bit. Maybe not much, but maybe I'm a little bit off. Maybe I need to go back and refine my theory a little bit to adjust for that. And that's the whole cycle that is done in the scientific method. You observe something, find something happening, make your theory, make a prediction, go back and look at it. Does it work or not? Go back and revise your theory. It's a constant change. So with gravity, you know, Newton had his law, has his universal law of gravity. It makes predictions as to what happens to the orbit of Mercury. We observe them and they're not quite right, so we have to go and refine it. The next refinement up was Newton's, or sorry, Einstein's general theory of relativity, which explained it a little bit better and works for Mercury. Will we find that when we get closer into studying a black hole that maybe Einstein's equations break down? And do we need some other theory of gravity to explain things in those extreme situations? And it doesn't necessarily, again, like I said, we're going to go through Newton's laws of gravity and I'm going to teach them as, you know, regular laws that they are, but just keep in mind they're not completely correct. Isn't yeah? That, uh, didn't they find the fashion light particles at the Large Hadron Collider? They had some... 
I didn't hear that. I know there was one in the Italians did a group a while ago. Is that about a year, year, year and a half ago now? Oh, just re I did not hear about a more recent one. He's talking about the Higgs. Yeah. The Higgs boson, but that's not a faster than light. They discovered it's a special part, it's a new particle, the God particle, so to say, that makes up all of the other particles. But it wasn't, there was a faster than light one a while ago that they had predicted, and then it was found that it was actually an error in their equipment that was causing it to be slightly faster than light. And that was taken back. They actually had to retract their observations. So as of right now, nothing goes faster than light. What we'll know in 10, 50, 100 years is a good open question. The Higgs boson, it's, the, it's, it's a particle that makes up matter. So it's the particle that is responsible for giving mass to things. So it's that, it's, it breaks up, so if it's a particle that actually is part of the, you know, creates the quarks and things that make protons and neutrons. So you're going down smaller and smaller. When you study atoms, you talk about protons, neutrons, and electrons. This is one of the subatomic particles below that that actually goes into making up those particles. So sort of the one that's the one that is believed to be responsible for creating the mass, the mass that exists in all particles. Okay, anything else? Okay. So scientific method there. And at the end of each chapter, I just kind of give you a little summary here. And I'll go through this briefly and just kind of refresh what we'd, what we'd gone through on, this, on the chapter. Astronomy, we talked about, of course, is just the study of everything. So if you want to study everything in, the, everything in the universe, that's astronomy. And then that gets broken down into studying things more in more detail. You can study, like in this class, we're looking at the stars and the galaxies. The Astronomy 103 class that some of you have taken looks in detail at the planets. Stars, we talked about the celestial sphere, which is very useful for describing where planets are, where stars are, where galaxies are on the sky. So an astronomer can point out a galaxy and say, OK, here it is. It's in such and such a coordinates. And the, another astronomer can go ahead and find it, find it. The Earth's orbit around the sun is called the ecliptic. That's just the path the Earth takes around the sun. It is tilted at 23 and a half degrees. And that's what causes the seasons. Because it's tilted, we get seasonal changes. So we get warmer summer, cooler winter because of that. And I mentioned when we did that, I believe we talked about it, it doesn't have anything to do with the distance of the Earth from the Sun. We're actually furthest away from the Sun in July, so we're on our way to getting a little bit closer to the Sun now, and we'll reach that closest point probably in early January. So in January we'll be the closest to the, closest to the Sun, and July we're furthest away, which actually would serve to moderate our seasons a little bit. And it would also, going back to the scientific method, because that's one thing that people often give me, you know, if you ask about the cause of the seasons, it's, well, the Earth is closer to the sun or further away. That also, thinking about the scientific method, makes a prediction. If you assume that it's because we're closer or further away from the sun that we get seasons, it makes sense, right? If we're closer to the sun, it should be hotter. If we're further from the sun, it should be cooler. But it also would predict that it would do that all over the Earth at once, right? If we're closer to the sun, then it's summer up here, well, it's summer down here too, right? Which isn't how it works. So Australia should have summer at the same time we do, if it's just because of the distances. But because it's the tilt, when you're tilting here, when we're tilted towards the sun, we get warmer, more direct light, but Australia is getting indirect light. It's tilted away from the sun. 
So that's sort of thinking about the scientific method gives you one more explanation saying, you know, that's why the, the distance can't make, the distance can't be the cause of the seasons because it makes a prediction that we know to be true, we know to be false. It makes a prediction that, you know, Pennsylvania and Brazil are going to have winter and summer at the same time and we know it's the opposite of that. So that's the angle causing the seasons. The moon, we looked at the phases a little bit last time. Um, it shines by reflected light, meaning that the moon does not produce any light of its own. So if you turn off the sun, the solar system gets very, very dark. Not only do you not have the sun during the day, but the moon and all the planets shine by light reflected from the sun, from the, by, the, by the sun. So the sun shines light to the moon, it reflects off the moon to us. If you turn off the sun, the moon turns off as well. We would not be able to see anything coming from the moon because it doesn't emit any light of its own. Solar and sidereal day, due to the Earth's rotation around the sun, you remember the solar day is 24 hours, that's what we use. The sidereal day was 23 hours and 56 minutes. That's how long it really takes the Earth to spin on its axis one time. And last one here, synodic month, we had two different months. We had a synodic month and a sidereal month. Synodic month is the month of the phases. How long does it take to go from full moon to full moon? Sidereal month was how long it takes the moon to really go around the Earth one time. And again, both of those are due to the Earth moving around the sun at the same time. There's multiple motions and the way they combine give us different observations. <coughs> the years, we had two different years. We had a tropical year and a sidereal year. That was due to the precession of the Earth's axis. Remember how the Earth is tilted at 23 and a half degrees? But it wobbles like a top so that where that's pointing in space changes over 26,000 years. And then what we went over today, we talked about distances. We measure distances through triangulation here on the Earth. We call it parallax out in space. Measures the shift of a nearby star compared to much more distant stars. And we look at that across the Earth's orbit. Eclipses occur due to everything being lined up, due to the Earth, the Sun, and the Moon all being nicely lined up. But we don't get them every month because they're not lined up perfectly. And sometimes when you get the Sun and the Earth perfectly lined up, the Moon's a little bit above or a little bit below, and its shadow doesn't cast on the Earth or the Earth's shadow does not cast on it. If they were all on a flat piece of paper, if you could really draw it perfectly on a flat piece of paper, then you would get a solar eclipse every month. Every time you had a new moon, if it was perfectly flat, you'd get a solar eclipse every single month. Get a lunar eclipse every single month. They wouldn't be near as interesting. Right? I mean, they occur all the time. Big, de big deal. We know there was a solar eclipse, you know. Still won't occur in all over the Earth. You know, that solar eclipse is only going to be one specific area. But still, if you see them in your lifetime, if you see a couple in your lifetime, it's no longer such a big deal as compared to you see one here and you know nobody remembers one for thousands of years. You know, it goes back gener many generations to think about when the last eclipse occurred at some point. And then finally the last thing we finished up was the scientific method. Really it was just that cycle, make an observation, make a theory to explain that observation, that theory should make some new predictions. Let's observe and see if they're right and then you go back and modify your theory make new predictions, and it's just an endless cycle. And it hasn't stopped. People are still working on gravity. You know, it doesn't stop. When Newton's work gravity, okay, you're not done. You're still working it. Einstein found something better. Is there something better coming? Probably. There's probably something that will explain it even better than Einstein did. 
at some point in the future. You know, I'd be shocked if I could come back in 500 years and still see that you know, um, general relativity was the best theory of gravity. I may be, may, may be. Maybe I'll come back in 500 years and find out that it is and I'm wrong. But you know, Newton did his in the 1700s. What was late uh, 1700s? It lasted about 200 years. And something else came up better. So we've been using general relativity as about not quite 100 years old. So it's been the best theory for 100 years, but you know, a couple hundred years from now, we may have found something even better. One chapter down. Questions? Or we'll zip on to get started on chapter one. And actually, if you go on D2L, you should actually be able to get chapter one slides have been up, chapter two slides should be up. You should, I'm trying to keep you about a week ahead so that if you want to get the slides ahead of time, you should be able to actually get even the following chapters up right now. They should have been available this early this morning. Chapter two is the Copernican Revolution and talking about how Copernicus kind of changed things that we see. So kind of it explains how it changed sort of our view of the universe. Before Copernicus, for the most part, everybody thought that the Earth was the center of the solar system. Earth was the center of the solar system and therefore the universe. Everything went around the Earth. Copernicus was not the very first, but one of the very first to suggest that maybe things would be easier to explain. Maybe it would be a simpler scientific theory. As we said, scientific theory wants to be simple instead of the complexity, that it might be simpler to explain things that we see in terms of having the sun at the center <coughs> of the universe and the earth going around that. So really what we're going to look at is some of the history here and, about gra and a little bit leading, into gra leading in towards gravity which we'll finish, which begin in the next chapter. But really the first thing I want to go through is the motions of the planets. So what do we see in terms of how the planets move? That's where everything is different. The moon has very simple motions, goes through phases, but you can predict very easily where it's going to be if you assume the Earth is at the center. It's a good assumption, right, in terms of the Earth, because the Earth is at the center of the of orbit of the moon. The sun has a very simple orbit. Sun is very easy to predict, too. Sun doesn't go around the Earth, but the Earth goes around the sun, so you're just kind of flipping everything. The planets really have a very complicated motion and that's what caused astronomers all the trouble. So that's what I mean with the birth of modern astronomy was beginning to understand and having the Earth not no longer be at the center. And what we come up with, I'll give you three laws of planetary motion and Newton's three laws of motion. Laws in science like to come in threes. So we'll have three laws of planetary motion how, explaining how we determine the planets, how the planets move. And then Newton's are three more general laws of motion and kind of leads us into the concept and idea of gravity. So how do planets move? I already mentioned the sun, the moon, the stars. It's all very simple. They're, they make sense. You can explain their motions very, very easily with an Earth-centered system. So you can explain how the stars are going to move, where the stars are going to be three weeks from now. Do the Earth center is very simple calculation to do and you can tell where it's going to be at any specific time. Same thing with the moon, same thing with the sun. The planets don't do that. The planets are much more difficult to explain because if you watch the planets, they'll move relative to the stars. So they'll be in one place here and a month later and a month later, here are, here are December, January they're here, February, March, they're moving around. 
they're not always in the same place relative to the stars. Whereas if you come back and look at one of these stars here in Leo, and you come back a month later and you look for the constellation of Leo, the whole sky may have shifted a little bit, but the star is still going to be in the same place relative to all the other stars. Come back a year later, two years later, ten years later, the positions have not changed in terms of what you can see at least with the naked eye. They also change in brightness. The stars don't, few stars do, but most stars don't change that drastically in brightness that you can tell. Some of the planets do. Some of the planets can become very, very bright or relatively faint depending on where they are in their orbits. They change their speed and you can sort of see that here. This is what we call a retrograde, retrograde loop. So this is retrograde motion of Mars and as it goes through here it moves in one direction. It stops, goes back the other way. So it's how fast it's moving. It's moving pretty quickly through the sky here. It starts to slow down as it comes in towards this loop and turns around, stops for an instant. Not really in space but apparently it stops and then turns around and goes back slows down and stops again and then does the other, does, goes back. So it's constantly changing. So in trying to explain this is why is this orbiting like this? Remember our theory, our scientific theory has to be able to predict this. So if we want to make, say that Mars goes around the Earth, which, okay, good, 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 possibly good theory, we can test it. How do you explain its orbit? If it's just going around the Earth, why does it decide to stop, go backwards for a little while, stop again, and go forward again. It's very difficult to explain that in an Earth-centered system. It's not impossible. You can do it. There are theories that worked for thousands of years in order to explain how the planets moved, how the planets apparently moved in the sky. No, oh, backwards. How about forward? And here's how we did it. Okay, there's the Earth at the center of the universe. You've got the planet going around it. But we can't just have it going around in a single circle like you do for the sun or the moon because you have to account for that retrograde motion. So the Earth doesn't, the, so the planet doesn't directly orbit the Earth. It really goes on this little circle we call an epicycle. It orbits on that around the center of that epicycle is on a bigger circle that goes around the Earth. Complicated. It works. It's a perfectly good scientific theory. It makes no sense to us now because we, we tend to think of gravity. You know, gra what's going on? What is this thing orbiting around? But in terms of a mathematical model, it's perfectly acceptable. It will, it will predict the position of the planets. It will explain retrograde motion because you can adjust all of these different variables. You can adjust how big this cycle is. You can adjust the speed at which it moves, the planet moves on it. And you could explain and use it to predict. And it was done very well to explain how the planets orbited. And you could make predictions and they were not perfect but pretty close. So it, it, and it does explain the retrograde motion because when you look here, as the, normally this whole thing is going around, most of the time it's going in one direction. But every once in a while when the planet is on this portion going backwards, it's going to undergo retrograde motion. It's going to appear to go backwards in the sky. So it's not really stopping, not really stopping and starting again. It's just as an apparent motion. Now, in order to really accurately, it starts to get a little more complex here. But you can see there's Jupiter showing a couple of little retrograde loops that as it goes around that epicycle, here it's going to appear to go backwards and then again and then again. But if you recall looking, and I'm going to go back, I'll come back here in just a second. 
whoops. This one, this little inset diagram that I didn't point out, shows the retrograde motion and shows several different loops of the same planet. So if you looked at Mars as it came by each time, every couple years, Mars undergoes retrograde motion. It's not always exactly the same. Sometimes it's here, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's the positionings change a little bit depending on the exact orientation of the planets in space. Oops. So it's actually more complicated than this, and they ended up with systems that used multiple epicycles. So not only was there an epicycle where Mars went around this circle that went around that went around another circle that went around here, but add another circle on this or another one. You could add as many as you needed to. Once you give one epicycle, there's no reason to say, why can there only be one? Why couldn't there be two or three or ten? So you could add as many as you wanted to to be able to refine your, refine your model to make the observations match as closely as you could. And that's what was done. But that starts to make the theory, you said it should be simple. We start to make the theory more and more complicated, and that's not a good scientific theory. Yes, you can do it. Nowadays, it would be no big deal. You know, if we'd come up with this now, it would be no problem fixing this. I mean, geez, computer does the calculation. Who cares how many circles you put on it? You could easily predict it. Now, think about this 2,000 years, 2000 years ago when people were doing these calculations. No computers, no calculators, no slide rules. No, it was all done by hand. So you had to do all those calculations. It was a lot to try to add in, keep adding in epicycles, but it was done. And they had to be able to make it predict them very accurately. Now what we do, and finish up probably here, if we go in the heliocentric, sun-centered model of the solar system, well, it makes it a lot simpler. It explains retrograde motion much more simply. I know that diagram doesn't look any simpler, does it? But you've got the sun here at the center. It's just got lots of little lines on it, but here's the Earth going around the sun. Here's Mars going around the sun. And all it's saying is that at position one, we see Mars here. Position two, we see Mars. Three, as you walk around, just match up the numbers there. That the Earth is going around the Sun in a closer orbit than Mars. So at some point, every couple of years, we pass Mars. When you pass an object, it's going to look like it goes backwards. It really isn't. You, know, you pass a truck on the highway, it looks like it's going backwards. It's still really going forward. It's just going forward a little bit slower than you are, but relative to what you see and relative to the more distant objects, it's going to look like it goes backwards for a short time. That's the same thing here. The Earth is just passing Mars. You don't need to add in epicycles. You don't need to add in anything else in order to be able to explain how it, how it works. It's a much simpler version, a much simpler theory, and works a lot better for the most part. Not quite right. It still didn't quite really, its first observations really didn't explain anything any better. Its first observations were about the same accuracy as the older ones. It was a simpler model, but not quite right. And one of the problems was, was that Copernicus, he put the sun at the center, but he didn't change one other thing. He still said that all the orbits had to be circles. All the orbits were perfect circles. And because of that, some of his predictions for where the planets would be were slightly off. And what we'll look at next time will come through as to how we finally got over that hump. We first finally got the Earth out of the center of the solar system, and then we'll find out that really the orbits are not circles as they had been thought for thousands of years. So, any questions? Otherwise, I'm going to stop there, and then we will come back and pick up here on Wednesday.
So if you have any questions or anything on the lab, if not, if you haven't turned them in, make sure I get those before you go. And then if you're doing the extra credit assignment, make sure I get that before the end of the day. See you Wednesday.